Thank you, Penny. Another great song. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to uh, back to the book of Proverbs chapter 9. And uh, last week we saw again and focused on something that we talked about uh, a couple of months ago on a Thursday night. We talked about the seven pillars. And uh, we actually came into that point in the book of Proverbs in chapter 9. So we kind of took a little different angle at it than we did and showed you some things. But last week we saw how that uh, uh, the foundation of the Bible uh, is basically those seven pillars. And we learned a number of things last week from chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. But uh, just to recap briefly, we talked about that those seven pillars represent the seven major doctrines on which the whole Bible rests. And then we went back to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, and we saw that he tells us there that the whole world rests on these seven pillars. And of course, as you know, we, we went through, I gave them to you last week, we went through them in great detail uh, a number of months ago as we studied it on Thursday night, and then we went into the 11 dispensations uh, found in the Bible, trying to help you put your Bible together. And, um, you know, we saw that how that the basic teachings of the Bible uh, and this is the thing that I wanted you to see last week, and really I wanted you to take home with you, is that the basic things of the Bible, uh, you know, are more than just the um, sincere milk of the Word, as the Bible says. The basic things of the Bible are the gateway to a deeper relationship with God. It's the entry level. It's like going into a corporation, starting out as a janitor, and after 30 years working your way up to president of the company. This is what you do with the Bible. You go in at an entry level and you learn the basics and you get the fundamentals down and then you go through a process of spiritual growth. And that's what we're all about here. We help you put those things into your life to get your growth, get it going the way that it needs to go. And uh, you start with the milk of the Bible and then you work up into the meat of the Bible. Uh, you see an excellent example of this. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. There's an excellent example of this in Hebrews uh, in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. And it's a great study on it, and it's, uh, it really says what, you know, we're trying to uh, get you to see here. And he says in Hebrews chapter 5, he says, For when the time that ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Everyone uh, uh, that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern uh, both good and evil. Now, in a couple of verses here, this is the problem that, uh, that Solomon is trying to address as he's giving us all this. Verse 12 says that there comes a time in your life and my life as a Christian that we should be teachers. But he says, but here again, we, uh, <clears throat> you yourself can't get past the, the milk of the Word of God. No growth in your life. When you go down in chapter <clears throat> 6, which is the next chapter in verse 1, <clears throat> you'll see he talks there about somebody who has to lay the first foundations of repentance again. This is what he's talking about. There are people who get saved that after 20 years of being saved, they still don't understand not only how they got saved, but be able to tell somebody else how they got saved. He calls it the first principles of the oracles of God. And our Christian life should be one of growth. 
Milk in your Bible always equals being unskillful in the Bible. The meat of the Bible always represents the doctrine of the Bible and being able to handle it. And as we said last week, and the point I was trying to make, we want to come to the place where we start with it and then we move into the deeper things uh, of the Word of God to have a deeper relationship with the Word of God. Verse 14 says of Hebrews, people who are full of age, that's spiritually speaking. Those who by reason of use, somebody who takes the Bible and does something with it, and it says, having your senses exercised to be able to discern both good and evil. Now, there's somebody at the end of that who received God's instruction and does something with it, and uh, uh, there's somebody who didn't. And you're going to find all through Christianity, people fall into those two two kinds of categories. You're going to find people that are going to do something with the Word of God, and you'll find people who are not. And then we saw last week how that wisdom in the person of Christ throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, how it moved down through history and impacted us on planet Earth. And today, we'll move into the next set of verses. And again, I want to begin to show you one of the greatest principles in dealing uh, and the ministry of dealing with people. Now, we all know, and we've talked about this many, many times, that the ministry is people. The ministry is not inanimate objects. The ministry is people, taking the Word of God and ministering to them. And if, if we're to be effective in dealing with people in the ministry, then it stands the reason that we need to perfect on a regular basis our ministry skills uh, continually. Taking people uh, and, 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 and making our people skills and dealing with them better. As you develop those skills... Uh, being able not only to relate to people, but be able to relate the Bible to those people. As you develop those skills, as he said in Hebrews chapter 5, you exercise your senses, you learn many different aspects of the ministry. One of the goals that I've always had in, in, in teaching you the Bible is to get as many of you to the point where you really understand uh, what it means to be able to help people with the Bible. I do that on a, on a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week basis. Uh, my ministry only becomes more effective as, as I get as many people up with the ability to be able to do that as, can, as you can. This is what the Bible means when you reproduce yourself. Most people think that <clears throat> when you reproduce yourself, you just get people saved. Well, that's true in a very small sense, but there's more to it than that. I'm not satisfied with just reproducing myself to get you saved. My goal is to take you through these levels to help you better help me in reaching and fulfilling the ministry, which is people. Uh, we started about three years ago, and many times when we were off for the summer, but we start back up in the fall, and a lot of new people will ask me about what is the people ministry you talk about all the time. And I, the name is really an undefining name. I call it that simply because it's a ministry that we want to learn how to work with people. But simply, three years ago, once the church got to uh, a certain level, I, uh, I fulfilled something that I always wanted to do. I always wanted to take, a, and it was a volunteer basis. Uh, it wasn't like I asked some people and didn't ask other people. Everybody had the opportunity to get into it. But I wanted to take a group of people who wanted to go to the next level. Uh, so simply helping people who have a desire to work with others develop their skills to a uh, uh, what I would call a, a razor-sharp level. 
You know, what we do is go from Genesis to Revelation. We just started this year. We started the book of Judges. And what I've done is, is, is went through uh, each book of the Bible, laying out the cause and the effect of why people have problems. You hear me say it all the time that the Bible has the answer to every issue that you're going to face or anybody that you're going to be associated with is going to face. But you've got to know where to go to the Bible to find that. There's many illustrations in the Bible through the lives of the men and the women in the Bible, the stories in the Bible, that when you sit down and you, you see them and you read the story and then you go back in and you see the New Testament principles involved in the Old Testament story and how it comes to light to show you exactly that people back in the Old Testament, they have the exact same problems that we have today. And the Bible back then was the answer for them, just like the Bible today is the answer for us. But it's the process of going through that and learning those things from Genesis to Revelation. All of life's issues, all of life's principles that are laid out in the Scriptures, the, as I said, the cause and the effect of every issue in life and in understanding why, why people need to come to the Word of God and why I say all the time that the Bible is the only book on the planet that will solve your problems. You know, over the years, uh, with the many, many, many people that I've worked with, a number of years ago, I, I, I saw the value in what I was doing with people, not for them, but for, for my own self. And I began to catalog the, the, the principles. I began to make a list. I'm a, I'm a list guy. I make a list of everything, and I always come back with it later on to uh, use it in some format. But I saw many, many years ago that I started to catalog the principles that when I would work with people, this problem will take this sets of principles. And uh, I've, I'm, you know, I've got three notebooks full of those things, and, and over the years, I've kind of boiled them down to what I call the rules of biblical counseling. And there's probably 30 or 40, maybe 50 of them that, I, that have become pretty much automatic in my world. When I see a situation, when I see a problem, when I deal with somebody, I, I don't go to Ann Landers or Billy Graham's, this is my answer column, I go back to the Bible. And I realized that the principles in the Word of God are what I'm going to use. And in time, when you learn and you grow, you understand that the, set, the problem will always define the principles that you use. Your job is to get to the point where you're so good with it that you understand immediately, there's the problem, here's the principle, and you begin to operate by them. This is what my goal was or is uh, in the people ministry to help uh, people that want to get to that level be able to do that. The things that I've learned in dealing with human nature and how people react to the issues of life, I call them simply the rules of engagement, how I engage somebody's problem. I don't just go back to Bob Alexander's homespun theology back here or my, my elixir mix that I put together that, that's going to help your problem. You've got to be able to know to go in the Word of God where the principle covers the problem. I'll give you a couple examples that I, I give people that for their own benefit in, in, in dealing with people. One of the things that I've learned over the years, years ago, is in dealing with people is that you, you learn never to take things personal. That's probably one of the hardest things to learn when you're dealing with people. Because, you know, you want people to do what's right, and they don't always do what's right. And you have a tendency to get your emotions involved 
uh, to the point where uh, you kind of lose the balance. And then, you know, you, you take things personal. Uh, you'll find people that want to start in the Bible. They'll go along for a while. You'll be all excited about it. They'll all be excited about it. And then suddenly, you're the only one that's excited about it anymore. And, you know, and many times we take that as rejection. And, it, it, you know, it's a, it's a, you're going to find in times that, you know, people, you're going to invest your life in people. You're going to try to help them. You're going to bring them along to, such a, uh, to a certain degree. And then they're not going to want to do right anymore. And guess what? They're going to blame you because of the fact that they don't want to do right. Now, that can, that can get to somebody. And I always tell people and ask people, when you start to work with people, the number one thing you better remember and keep before you, who are you working for? Are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it for the Lord? That always has helped me. I remember one time back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, I think it's down around verse 7. Samuel had the same problem. I call it over-identification with the issue. Samuel was the prophet, and he went to give the nation of Israel uh, the great word that God was going to give them a king. And he goes to them and he says, God's going to give you a king. I got some great news. It's going to be wonderful. They turn around and said to him, we don't want the king that God's going to give us. We want to be like all the other nations, and we want kings like they have. He says, you're not supposed to be like the other nations. God's got a great king for you. We don't want that. Samuel, we want what we want. Well, he took it personal. He's down the dumps. I never go down to the dumps anymore. People don't throw things away like they used to. You don't find nothing down there. He's down in the dumps. And he's down there and God comes down to him and he says, Samuel, what's the matter? And he's, he's crying, you know, over the fact that they rejected him. And God says, you know what, Samuel, get a grip. They didn't reject you. They rejected me. And so you realize and learn that you're working for the Lord. And when you work with people, you do it by the book. You do the best you can. But at the end of the day, you got to get your head screwed on straight that you're doing it. You're doing God's work. You're not doing your own work. Another one that I tell people all the time is, and this is, this is probably the number one problem that we all get into when we start to work with people. And it's simply never want somebody to do right more than they want to do right. The moment you want somebody to do right more than they do, you're going to become vulnerable. Because you know what we're going to do? If there's biblical principles that we're going by and we're holding them accountable with, when they start to drop off and we want them to do right, we'll do stupid things to try to keep them to do right. And what will happen is we'll wind up shortcutting the principles just so they'll do what's right. I want to tell you something. I want you to do right. I want you to live right. I want you to be right. But I ain't cutting anything out of my message or the Bible to have you do what's right. You do what's right because it's right. But that's what happens many, many times. The third and another one I give them is... is Know your limitations. And we all have our limitations. You know, you can't deal with people without thoroughly understanding the issues. And I realize that when I start to train people or you want to work with people, there's different levels here in this church. The basic level is discipleship. Almost anybody could do that. Then you have different levels where you're up here, you're up there, and it's a thing where uh, it's, uh, you know, everybody's on their different levels. And, you know, you get, I've seen people get over their head in situations. 
And it's because they want to do right. They want to, they want to teach this or they want to teach that. Or maybe it's teaching the Bible somebody, buddy. But you got to realize that you can't, you can't teach the Bible or anything if you don't thoroughly understand it yourself. Most people that I get the idea, well, I'll just go get somebody's book over here or I'll get somebody's outline and I'll use that. I use outline and books all the time, but not because I'm trying to find out what I'm going to say. I already understand it. I want to add some stuff to it. But many times we, we get over our limitations. Another one I give people all the time is never let your emotions get involved to the point that you lose sight of the principles involved. That's so vital. And then I always, you, in my mind, I always keep never upright outside the biblical principles. They are our boundaries. They are our boundaries. And they become our guidelines. I was driving. I don't know if you've been on South 350 uh, lately from Westridge down uh, to Knobtown, uh, but uh, they're repaving the road down there. And um, I was driving home from Bible study uh, the other week, and uh, it was really dark out, and they had repaved the road, but they haven't lined the road yet. And it was dark, real dark black pavement, real dark night, and I was driving up there, and it was hard to, even with my lights on, it was hard to see where everything was on the road uh, because there was, you know, it was just one big mass of black. And I found myself, you know, nobody was around me, and I thought to myself, in my the way, I just better stay in the middle of the road here because you get too far over because you can go off the drop-offs. And then I, I came back about uh, a week later, and they had lined the road. And I thought to myself, with that white luminous paint, and I thought to myself, how much easier it is to have a center line and two lines over here that tell me where I'm at. And you know what? Life is like that road without any markers on it. The road of life is just like that blacktop road in the middle of the night. And if you don't have some guidelines, if you don't have some principles, if you don't have some things that keep you between the white lines, it keeps you in the left lane or the right lane or tells you where the center lane is, it's easy to get all over the road of life. And that's really what the biblical principles do and what the Bible does. And today we're going to look at yet another great principle in dealing with people. I, I think it's one of the best. And as we start to move into the meat of Proverbs here, you're going to see more and more of these pop up. And these are the things that, that I, I, I fundamentally follow in what I do when I look at people, deal with people, or have to be confronted with circumstances or situations. Now let's read Proverbs chapter 9, and we'll pick it up in verse 6 through 9 here. Here's what it says. It says, Forsake the foolish and live, and go in the way of understanding. He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man uh, getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instructions to a wise man, and he will yet be wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Now, Father, help us today as we come to your word. We love you. We look forward to all that you do for us, and we thank you, Father, for uh, all that you've given us. And, uh, Lord, we just love you and praise you for all you do now. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. Just a minute. Zona called me this morning, and sure, internet's down, and she wanted me to put, get her on the phone and put my phone here so she could hear the service, and I forgot, so let me get it here. But we're not, in, we're not into the message yet, so hang on here. I, I... Zona! 
How are you today? Are you ready to listen? I'm ready to preach. I'm going to put the phone down here and uh, we're going to go to town, okay? All right, love you, hon. That's so funny. The girl wants to study the Bible. You know, you guys need to bow your heads and get right with God, and we'll get back to you. Now, you're going to see here in this passage this things out two kinds of people. And people come in all different shapes and sizes, all different ethnic groups and all different things, you know. But I'm going to tell you, fundamentally, in the book of Proverbs, it tells you that people fall into two categories. You have a wise man and you have a foolish man. When we get into Proverbs chapter 9, it even puts a little more magnification on it and shows us that fundamentally, no matter what issues a person has, their ability to fix those issues will come down to these two areas right here. And in life, not only are you going to find people who are wise and foolish, but you're going to find people who are teachable and people who are unteachable in life. You have people who will take whatever you say and do something with it. They'll take the Word of God and change who they are. Or you'll have people who reject anything that you say to them, and they just get deeper into the problem. Now, I need to say this. Some of the people who are unteachable, they can be the nicest people on the planet. You, you get, we get the idea that if a person doesn't want to do what's right, that they're hunchback with a big old thing, you know, and ugly and walking around in darkness. No, that's not true. Some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life don't want to do what's right with the Word of God. Save people. And you can be the nicest person on the planet. You can help to do uh, for anybody and fun to be with and, and great people. But when it comes to doing what the Bible says and applying it into your life and taking the truly most important things in life, they just won't do that. Totally unteachable. I've seen people that have been in churches for 20 years. Went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and did everything, been in a church all of their life. And yet at the end of their life of 20, 30 years, they knew nothing more about the Bible than the day they got saved. Now in verse 7 and 8 is a very good, this is some good information for us to have. He says here, He that reproveth the scorner getteth to himself shame. And he that rebuketh a, a, a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Now, here's the other side. You'll find people who don't, are unteachable, who are very nice people, but then you're going to find some who will turn on you and are very wicked people. They'll take the good that you give them, and they'll return evil for it. Uh, it's, uh, you, you've got to understand, when some people are unteachable uh, for a long time, it's become a way of life. They're not just unteachable when it comes to the Bible. I've met people that are unteachable in anything. I mean, there are people that you can't tell anything to. They think they know everything about life, and when it, not just about the Bible. And for some people are unteachable, it has become a way of life for them. So when, it, when that's the case, they will, they will survive through life by, guess what, always blaming their problems on somebody else. That's the only way that they can survive in life. They're not going to learn anything themselves. They're always right. They always have the final say. So in time, for them to survive, they're always going to have to be blaming their situation on everybody else. And at some point, you'll become the bad guy. You'll become the fall guy. 
You'll be my savior on Monday morning, but you'll be the bad guy by Thursday afternoon. That's the way it works many, many times. The blot mentioned here can be a number of things. We're going to see it in an example here in a little bit. But the blot mentioned here can be a number of things. They will lie about you. They'll hurt you. They'll assassinate your character. They'll tear you down to others. (laughs) Calling you a cult is very popular these days. You'll, You'll hear all kinds of things. This is why it's always vital for you and for me to always follow biblical principles in all your dealings because you can't argue with the principles. And the principles form for us kind of a documentation based on the Bible of how we dealt with a situation. So verse 8 tells us that we have two kinds of people that you're going to face in life. And I'm sure as I'm saying this, if you work out in the workforce someplace or you have friends or you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You probably have a list in your mind of people that you know that you've been associated with down through life that you know that, that they're unteachable. The Bible says, Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. And it says, Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. You see? One's teachable, and one's unteachable. And you can take every issue in life, every problem in life, every circumstance in life, And the reason why a person will not get out of that, a reason why a person will choose to stay in a dead-end situation is because at the end of the day, he's unteachable. And we've all had our problems in life, and we've all struggled through things in life before we're saved and even after we're saved. But the reason why so many of God's people get to the point where God wants them to be is because even in their problems, Even in the stupid things that we've done through life, we had an attitude of being teachable. That's the key. One of the greatest things about a preaching of of the Bible, I think, when you start to preach the Word of God, is is watching the faces of people. It's a a skill that most preachers uh, never learn this skill. And it takes some time. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a lot like a piano player who can, uh, when he's playing the piano, he can have fun with the crowd and be watching out the crowd. He's not even watching the keyboard. He's so into that piano and that piano so into him, he doesn't need to look at what he's doing. He can enjoy and find out if the crowd's liking it or not liking it, and then he plays to that. Preaching's the same way. You watch somebody's face, And you don't have to focus all the time on what you're trying to say. And then you can adjust your message. You can take it wherever you want it to go. While you're preaching, you can develop it and lay it out by watching the crowd. Our faces are the key to everything about us. In the Bible, it's called countenance. And it's one of the greatest studies that you'll ever find. First time you find it in the Bible is a great story in the Bible, and one we talked about in people ministry and, and worked all the angles on it. It's in Genesis chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. It's a story of Cain and Abel. And you know the basic story. They both brought sacrifices to the Lord, and the Bible says that when it came to Abel, he brought the right sacrifice. God had respect unto him. But when it came to Cain, he brought the wrong one. And God didn't have respect. And Cain got an attitude about it. And when he got an attitude about it, God was concerned about his attitude. And God came down to him and he said, Cain, great words. Why has thy countenance fallen? Cain didn't have the joy, 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 joy down in his heart anymore. And when you lay it all out, boy, what a great lesson this is. You know what Cain was upset about with his brother? 
Cain was upset. His brother did nothing to him. His brother brought the right sacrifice and got the blessings of God out of it. Cain brought the wrong sacrifice, didn't get the blessings of God out of it. You know why he's mad at his brother? He's mad at his brother because his brother got blessed by God and he didn't. And many times in dealing with people, they're going to see the blessings of God in your life and not have them in their life and they're going to make you the problem. That's a great study in Cain. And he says, why hast thou countenance fallen? What are you upset about? And there again, he said, Cain, if you're really upset because I didn't accept your offering, I'm going to teach you something. You go get the right offering, take those wonderful watermelons and cantaloupes and fruits and the vegetables that you labored so hard with your own hands to grow, take them over to your brother and trade them for one of them little lambs that he's got, bring it over here, offer that lamb, no problem, I'll accept it. Cain didn't do that. Cain was wroth, and in time, Cain not only killed his brother, but he left the presence of the Lord. You know what Cain was? He's unteachable. God said, look, pal, don't no reason to be upset. I don't know what your issues are today. I don't know what your problems are today. I don't even know if you have any. But in a crowd this size, there's got to be some someplace. I don't know what your issues are. I don't know what your problem is, but I'm telling you this. If you're teachable, you can get out of it and get through it if you want to. Two kinds of people. Two kinds of people. You correct one, he's going to clobber you. You correct the other one, he's going to love you. And all through the Bible, Proverbs 21, verse 29, a wicked man hardened his face. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1 says, a, a man's wisdom maketh his face to shine. Proverbs 15, 13, a merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance. Psalms 10, 4, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the light of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. Your face shows everything today about where you're at with God. It's like Exodus chapter 39, verse 34, uh, down there in that great chapter, around verse 29, where Moses is up on the mount with God. And when he comes down off that mountain, his face is aglow. His face is shining. His face is shining because he's been with the glory of God and around the glory of God, and that glory of God has gotten into his face and it shows, and he's walking down off that mountain, and people are down there saying, my goodness, there's a UFO coming down that mountain. And when it got a little bit closer, they saw it was Moses. And Moses walked in, and his whole face was aglow. And the Bible says that it scared the people. See, that's part of the problem. People that are unteachable will always get nervous around people who are glowing for God. Amen. Moses had to put a veil on his face. Tone it down a little bit. So the people wouldn't be so nervous around him. But the Bible says, if any man love God, the same is known of him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. You know how you know? Because in your face, your countenance. Amen. That's how you know. You see it in people's face. Now, in Proverbs chapter 26, here's another place we want to go. This is another great principle. Here's something that goes along with where we're at in Proverbs chapter 9, and you want to get this down. You want to learn this. Now, this is one of the so-called contradictions in the Bible. 
And it's in uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 and 5. And uh, I'm going to help you figure it out today a little bit here in one of the greatest principles in dealing with people that you ever find. Verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. You see that? Two kinds of people in the world, and there's two kinds of fools. And you deal with them totally different. One will be teachable. The other one will be unteachable. You're going to find people who know nothing and want to learn everything. Then you're going to find people who know everything and will never, never learn anything. It's the way it works. Now look at verse 4. It says this. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. I'll get, let me give you a good example of this so you'll understand it. Let's say we're here on Thursday night Bible study. Any question you want to ask about the Bible? Guy comes in and he's lost or he's really screwed up on his Bible. And he comes in there and we start talking about things. And the guy raises his hand and comes up with some completely off-the-wall doctrine that is totally wrong, totally crazy, has nothing to do with anything. But you see that the person is teachable. He sincerely not only believes what he's saying, but he, he's open to the fact that he wants to know the truth. This guy's not looking to prove a point. He's not looking to start a fight. And you can tell the difference very quickly. At least I can. He's got some bad doctrine and some bad teachings. And he's asking for the truth. And he seems to be teachable. Now here's the rule. Bible says, answer not a fool according to his folly. He's got folly in his life and he's a fool. But he wants to learn. So the rule is, don't answer him according to his folly. Don't clobber him. Don't take his bad doctrine and, and, and destroy him. Don't drop the A-bomb on him. He may not have it right, but he will accept the truth when you show it to him. You don't get threatened by him. You don't think the fact that, well, I've got to stomp this down right now. You don't want to destroy the kid. You can discern and understand that the kid, even though he's messed up, he's trying to ask the best way he knows how. And when you start to show him, you can see in his face, you must start to respond to the truth. I've watched some of you guys around here do the exact same thing with, with guys and gals that have come into this church. They, they, they had messed up on some stuff or they didn't have the right teachings on some things and you didn't clobber them. You had enough wisdom and understanding to realize that that's where they are. And at some point in your life, you've got to be able to discern where people are at and got to be willing to take them where they're at to help them get to where you want them to be. You're showing the truth. But you don't deal with his folly, his bad doctrine. If he's looking for the truth, then you give it to him, you meet him halfway, and then almost in every case, you can bring him along and give him what he needs. That kind of fool that he's talking about here is teachable. So you, you answer not a fool according to his following. You don't go after him. You don't clobber him. You don't get him and, and expose him and come after him with all six guns blazing. 
you understand that, yes, he's a fool, but he's teachable. Bible says, verse 4, lest thou also be like unto him. I talk about being smarter than the problem. I talk about being able to discern. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14, we read a little while ago, that when you get the deep things of the Bible, your senses get exercised. What does it say you can do? Discern between good and evil. And you have the ability to discern whether this guy is teachable or whether he's not. And you bring him along. You don't put yourself in a position where he can come around and clobber you, but you give him an open opportunity to get where he needs to get. Lest thou be like him. He says, if you don't understand that and you clobber the kid, you're going to be as big a fool as he is. Now look at verse 5. Now here's the other scenario. Not a contradiction. Answer a fool here. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. Now, it looks like a contradiction, but it really isn't. Now, this guy is the other side of the coin. This guy cares nothing about the truth. This guy comes in on Thursday night or wherever he goes uh, to uh, confuse and to draw as many young Christians as he can. He's not going to change his position. He's predictable in it. So you answer him according to his folly. A guy like this, you know he's not looking for the truth. And you can tell in a heartbeat. You know, you get people who have been in cults, legitimate cults, for years and years and years and years and years. You know, you get this, you get this idea that, that you, can, you can win them. No, you're not. Not at all. You get a Jehovah Witness that's been a Jehovah Witness for five or ten years, you won't touch them. You get a Mormon that's been a Mormon for five or ten years, you ain't going to catch them. They've already had their brain replaced with a little black box that knows no truth in it. And you go out there in your nice, soft, soapy Christian attitude, you know what they do? They read that as weakness. They read that as weakness. There's a lot of God's people that remind me a lot of liberal Democrats. You got ISIS over there that want to cut your throat and cut your head off. And if they'd get a chance, they'd line every one of us up in this room one at a time and they'd saw your head off with a dull knife. They'd do it, they'd praise Allah for it, and they'd be praising around for it. And we get the idea sometimes in Washington that you got people like that who are totally wicked, who are totally against everything, that hate God and hate everything about it and have one agenda, that is to take over the world, that what? You're going to negotiate with them? You're going to sit down and work out a deal? They don't want a deal. They want you and me dead. And in a case like that, there's only one thing you can do. You wipe them off the planet. You find them wherever they're at, wherever they're hiding, whatever rock they're under, and you blow them to kingdom come. That's all you can do. And if you try to take that soft soap attitude, well, you know what? Let's embrace them. Yeah, you embrace the blade of their knife is what you're going to wind up embracing. I got a great solution. I'm not in Washington. I'm not going to go to Washington. Don't want to be in Washington. But if you want some good advice and you happen to find this on the website someplace and you're a senator or Congress or whoever you are, just wind them all up, send them over there, give them about six weeks to work the problem out. We'll see every one of them in orange coveralls getting their heads cut off. Because there's some people in life you can't deal with. There's some people in life that when you try to be nice, They look at it as weakness. 
Now, they'll exploit that weakness. But you got God's people that think, oh, that's so unchristian. Oh, that's so terrible. Really? Well, God, you don't know much about the Bible. God in the Old Testament, you know what he did? He knew that those nations were unteachable. And so when he told the Jews to go in and take their land, he said, you kill every woman. You kill every man. You kill every child. You kill every animal. Why? Unteachable. We seem to lose sight of those things. You find somebody that's been in one of those legitimate cults for a long time, and you're not going to touch them. I came home last Friday or Thursday, I forget when it was, and there was 15 Jehovah's Witnesses working my block. They were everywhere. I mean, I wish there was Jehovah Witness season. I'd have had my limit in about 10 minutes. They are everywhere. They were coming from every angle. And they were working. I mean, I got a short cul-de-sac street, man. They were bombarding that place. They parked their van right there. And I must have been three groups. Three groups, that, that different groups. I was hauling stuff back and far. I had went to Walmart to get my water for restart, and I'm out in that. Barb wouldn't come to the door. She's not going to talk to him. She was upstairs doing something. I'm stuck out there, and, and, and two of them walking down the street. And they, and they said, hey, we'd like to talk to you about something. We're Jehovah Witnesses. We'd like to talk to you about the kingdom. I said, I'd love to, but I'm just heading out for my blood transfusion right now. I can't talk. <laughs> They don't believe in blood transfusions. <laughs> they went on up the street. I took Buddy out. Buddy's a big old guy, big old lad, about 110, 20 pounds. And he's out there, and he's he, they're coming down the street, and they wanted to say something. And, and, boy, his tail's going, and he's barking, and he's getting down in the stand. They don't know he wants to play with them and kiss their face off. That's what he wants. But he looks intimidating. One guy said, man, that's a big dog. I said, yeah, stay back there. He hates Jehovah Witnesses. <laughs> I said, in his kennel, I'd bring him, but they'd be attacked. In his kennel, he's got score on the side of his hooch, how many he's bit. <laughs> Somebody like that, not going to change his position. They're going to try to get everybody they can. And you can, that's why the Bible says you answer a fool here. You hit him so hard with the truth, you knock him in the next week. You let his air come up against truth and find out that truth's not going to blink. You give him something to think about for the next 30 years of his life when the Holy Spirit of God makes the Word of God not return void. Now, every false cult, every false cult will have an undefendable spot in their belief. Something that they hide, they cover, that is 100,000% undefendable. A place where you can go that if you get them and you nail them on that, they got nothing to say, you can beat them senseless they don't want you to know it they don't want to talk about it they want to talk about there is no hell they want to talk about this they'll try to jump you off and get you everywhere if you stay on that target you'll rip his left arm off his right arm off his left leg his right leg and then you'll beat him with the limbs that you just ripped off there's no defense to him you send him out there with something to think about brother you let him know that he just met the truth of God Almighty. And those kind of people, you're not going to change. And when you see him and when you confront him or they come in, you know right out of the chute. There ain't nothing you're going to say. They've already got their mind made up. They're there preying on your people. They're there to find the weaklings that they can target. 
I've had them come over the years to Bible studies and they'll just sit the whole crowd and they'll say something here or say something there to find out where it's at. They'll listen to what other people say and they'll mark down where the weak ones are. And then after Bible study's over, you'll find them over there pulling them off someplace and talking to them. I know how it works. I walk over there and says, get out of here. Get your own sheep. Leave mine alone. There ain't nothing here for you. You don't want the truth. You don't want anything we've got. Now, I know that sounds terrible. Like I've lost the sweet spirit of Christ. I ain't ever had it. I know. I get it. I know. Let me just explain myself. If you knew my background, how I was raised, you would understand why I am the way I am. But evidently you don't care. So that's all right. Now, I know I give the impression that I'm very fixed on things in the Bible, that I am immovable. But I want you to understand, and I want you to get this. I'm the most open-minded person you have ever met on planet Earth. I am absolutely an open-minded person. I have, if you ever read my book, How to Study the Bible, I think I say it several times in there. My position is this. I will change whatever I believe. There's no pet doctrine that I have to hang on to. There's no pet doctrine that I just, I'm going to, I'm going to, I've got to have this. I've got to have this. Hey, I believe the King James Bible is the word of God. But honestly, I don't care. You come to me and show me the ASV is the word of God, I'm in. You show me the NIV is the word of God, I'm with you. I don't have a hobby horse that I just got to have this. What I got to have is the truth. That's what I got to have. I don't come if it comes in a tin can. I want it. If God came down and said, Bob, that Bible's not right, you get the, I've hidden my message in the yellow pages of a phone book. I'd be carrying the yellow pages around next week. I don't care where it's at. I want the truth. That's all I want. You show me from the Bible where the truth is, I'm with you. You want to tell to me, well, you don't get baptized by believing in Christ. You get baptized by being, uh, get saved by being baptized. Hey, take me in the Bible. Show me. Lay that thing out. I'm with you. Somebody says, well, you need to speak in tongues, Bob. Hey, let me tell you something. If you take me in the Bible and show me where I need to speak in tongues, I thank God I speak in more tongues than all of you. I don't care what it is. Somebody says there ain't no rapture. Hey, I'll get there somehow. You prove to me in that Bible there ain't no rapture, I'm with you. But here's my problem. I know a little bit about this book. And what I believe is based on the truth that I have. You give me a better truth, I'll take it. I don't care what it is. But I know you never will because this is the truth. But I'm not so closed-minded. I hear all the time, well, he thinks he's right and everybody else is wrong. Of course I do. (laughs) Do you know what a burden that is to carry around all your life? (laughs) Guy said to me one time, well, you think you know more about the Bible than anybody in the world? I said, I do not. I just know more about the Bible than you do. (laughs) I don't care what it is. There's nothing I believe that I wouldn't change tomorrow if God showed me what was right and I had was wrong. I'm open-minded about it, man. That's just where I'm at. No rapture, no millennium. 
No King James. I'm good. Just give me the truth. I'll be fine with it. There's nothing. You find these, some of these guys that just, I got to believe this. I got to hang on to this. I got to have this. Doc. I don't need anything but the truth. That's all I need. If God wants me to stand on my head in the corner for the next three years to go to heaven, I'll be back in three years. I'm going to be on my, that's what I'm going to do. I don't care. It's the truth that I'm looking for. All right, look at verse 9. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Now that's because he's teachable, see? Here's a man who'll take what you give him and and he'll apply it and he'll grow. I said, over the years, I've had people with me for 20-some years and they never grew an inch spiritually in all that time. And yet I've had others that in five years' time, they grew through the roof. What's the difference? One's teachable, one's not. That's why I like, that's why uh, young singles and, and, you know, uh, in in young couples, because you're you're so fresh. You've not been tainted by the world yet. You haven't had a lot of bad experiences in life that, that you didn't know how to deal with. And you're not, you're not cynical about things. You're still pretty fresh. You're still pretty uh, innocent in some ways, you know. And, I, and I, you're not tainted yet by the world. And, I, I'm, and, I, and I've got older people that are the same way. But those people have been around the Bible and in the Bible for a long time. But we get a lot of young couples coming in and young singles coming in. And I just love them to death. There, there, there's something you can really get your your hands into and really work with because they've not been destroyed yet. And, and, and young people have an affinity for, if, if, for most cases that they're, they're still teachable. They haven't grown to the place where they've learned to be unteachable. You've got to be, you be bombarded with garbage for about 40, 50 years before you get to that point where you're totally unteachable. Now, there's two great examples of these men we're talking about here. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. Proverbs chapter 9 talks about a, a teachable man, an unteachable man. One who gets it, one who won't. One who will take rebuke and love the guy who gave it. The other one, you try to tell them anything, he's going to make you his enemy. But I want to take a look at them in the closing minutes here. Now let's go back to first of Aaron for chapter 9, verse 7 and 8. Let's look at this verse and then I'll give the example. He that reproveth the scorner, Getteth to himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Now, the example right now, very clear that you'd have here in the Bible, would be John the Baptist when he went up against Herod and his wife Herodias. Now, Proverbs talked about an evil man and a strange woman. Herod and her would picture that being an example of that. But in Mark chapter 6 in the New Testament, verses 18 to 28, you don't have to turn to it. You know the storyline. John goes before Herod and his lovely wife, Herodias, is sitting there next to him. And John rebukes him. John is the kind of preacher, he doesn't care if he's before sinners on the street corner or the king and queen. The truth is going to be the truth. Uh, He doesn't mince his words. He doesn't worry about protocol. He certainly is not caring about being politically correct. He goes in there and there's the king who has taken his brother's wife, Herodias, and married her. And everybody else is just 
bowing down and saying, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, yes, just you're the king. Not John, boy. John goes in there, and he stands up there in front of him, and he says, you know what, Herod? He says, you're an okay guy, but I want to tell you something. You took her, which was your brother's wife, and you took that woman as your wife, and that's against the law, and you are wrong. From that point on, his wife Herodias was looking to get him. All because he told him the truth. You see, you rebuke a foolish man and you get a blot. He got a blot right there. From that point on, Herod's wife Herodias wanted to get John. She was angry that she embarrassed her in front of all the court. Who is this guy that he would rebuke the king and rebuke the king's wife even if we're wrong? His name was John. And boy, she gets him, doesn't she? Herod's birthday comes up. Herodias' daughter is an exotic dancer, belly dancer. Now she's twirling around on his birthday. He's probably had too much to drink. And uh, he's, she's swirling, he's swirling, the world is swirling. <laughs> and when she's done with her little calypso clacos or whatever those things are in her fingers and she does her little dance with her feathers and all that stuff, you know, Herod says, that was the greatest thing I ever saw in my life. Now, that's what I'm talking about. That's where that phrase started. And he said, you know what? He says, you are such an incredible, talented dancer. For doing this on my birthday and bringing me to joy, I'm going to give you whatever in my kingdom you want up to half the kingdom to a naked, pagan belly dancer. There's his character. But see, Mama had already sown the seed. So you know what she says? What do I want? I want John the Baptist's head on a charger. So they killed John. They killed John. John's a picture of a guy who goes in there, and it's a classic case. A Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7 and 8. He that reproveth a scorner getteth himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove a scorner, lest he will hate thee. That's what happened. Great example of it. Classic case. I'll show you another one. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, it'd be Stephen. Stephen's out there, and he goes up against the preachers against all the leaders of Israel. And he takes the whole chapter in Acts chapter 7, and he just peels the hide off of them. He starts with Israel's history, and he brings it through right up to the fact that they've crucified the Messiah. He rebuked them. He clobbered them, he nailed them, and what happened? They took him out and they killed him. There are some people that when you try to tell the truth to, you're going to get clobbered. Now, verse 8 says, rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Now, this one, if you ain't figured it out already, the greatest example is back in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. It's David and Nathan. You know the story. David took Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife, and he gets her pregnant. Uriah's on the battlefield down there fighting for Israel. He brings him home several times and tries to get him drunk to cover up the fact that, that his wife's pregnant, hoping that he'll have... Get, can have relations with her and, and then we can blame the pregnancy on him. 
but he won't go home. He's too loyal. So finally, David concocts a plan and sends a message back to the general with Uriah's own hand that when Uriah, the battle comes, fine, put Uriah right down on the front lines and withdraw from him and get him killed. And he got killed. And boy, he thinks he's got the whole thing worked out. It's all right and everything's good now. He's got the plan covered. And then one day in chapter 12, old Nathan the prophet comes in to do a little preaching. And he tells David a story. He says, oh, king, there was a rich man who had many, many, many sheep. And there was a poor little guy who only had one sheep. And there was a wayfaring man that came along down the road and he came to the rich man's house and that rich man wanted to fix him a meal. And instead of that rich man going and getting one of his own flock, he took the only sheep that that poor man had and he killed that sheep. And I'm bringing it to you this morning. David is enraged. David is absolutely incensed that, that who would ever do this? And he says, who is this guy that did this? And boy, old Nathan stuck that bony finger in his face and he says, thou art the man. Nailed him. But see, David was a teachable man. He loved God and the word of God. And when the prophet came in and confronted him, it broke David's heart. David says in verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And because David was teachable and loved the man who brought the message and loved the message that the man brought, it sets up for us the great principles of 9-9. Rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. Give instructions to a wise man and he will yet be wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Out of David's heart toward God, and his teachable spirit will come much of the Psalms. And within them, we can find our way back to God when we also sin against God. I don't know if you know it or not, but <clears throat> probably <clears throat> Psalm 51 is probably one of the greatest prayers in all of the Bible for us. And it comes from a man who took the rebuke and then grew through it. In fact, in Psalm 51, if you have any notes in your Bible at all, it tells you right there uh, before you even get into it. It says, Psalm 51, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David, when Nathan, the prophet, came unto him <clears throat> after he had gone into Bathsheba. It's a great Psalm. It says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquities. And cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. 
Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. Thou God of my salvation and of my throne shall sing aloud of my righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good, and in thy good pleasure undesigned, build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Thou shalt be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, then shall thy offer bullocks upon thy altar. What a great prayer. And I want you to notice, it's based on what David went through. Here's a man who sinned, but he was teachable. And when he was faced with the rebuke, he took the rebuke, and he grew through the rebuke. And because David went through what he went through, you and I have the basis for us to get to God when we get out of fellowship with God. I don't know if you noticed or not, but look at this. All five aspects of us coming to God for forgiveness as Christians when we sin. The first thing he says there in verse 2 is, wash me. That's First John chapter 1, verse 9. We're faithful and just to confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at verse 7, the second thing. He says, purge me. Take the iniquity away. Separate me, God. And that's what God does. When you confess it to God and you get right with God, when I get right with God, you know what he does? He separates us from that sin so we can have fellowship with him. The third thing in verse, uh, down through here in verse, uh, uh, verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart. Without a doubt, the greatest feeling in all the world. Look at verse, look at verse 6. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. God wants to give us a clean heart. And that's what he does when we confess. Look at the fourth thing in verse 12. He says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. There's my fellowship back. That's the restoration back to God. That, that's the goal for any church. The goal of any church ought to be, the goal of every Christian ought to be to restore others. It's never to hold grudges against them, never to blackball them, never to go through in life. It, it, it's all possible, the Bible says, live peaceably with all men. You come to the place where the job of this church is to restore people who have fallen out. Now, sometimes you can't. Sometimes they don't want restored. Sometimes they're unteachable. But in a situation where they are teachable and they are restorable, it's our job to do that. And then the last thing, verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltness. He was guilty of the blood of Uriah, but God delivered him from it. And and that's a great thing because it carries with it that once, once you sin, no matter what it may be, and you take it to God and get it clear and get it right, and these five things come back into your life, then you are delivered from blood guiltness. You know what that means? That means people can't go around and blame you anymore for the mistakes that you made. I mean, once a child of God has made his sin right with God, and he grows through it, why would we as God's people continually to make him bear that the rest of their life? Would you want God to bring up something that you did back in your life and every time you try to do something for God or every time you try to step out by faith or every time you tried to grow, God kept bringing that back up to you again? Every time you turned around, he'd be holding up a sign that you, for you to see it. 
How would we ever get through anything? God would never do that. God would never take the things that we've done against him, and once we confess them, he puts them far as the east is from the west. He never brings it up again. It's God's people who continually have to bring up something in somebody's past to keep it going simply because they themselves have never understood the character qualities of being forgiven. Bible says it's a broken spirit and a contrite heart. You and I, you and I, need to understand that if God forgives you, then who am I not to forgive you? If God takes away these things in your life and you bring it to the Lord, then who am I? Because I'm telling you, everybody's got a history. Everybody's got a past. Everybody's got things in their life that they are sorry for that they did. And God, when we forgive it, the great thing about God is not only does he forgive it, he forgets it. That's the key. Now, in the New Testament, this would be Peter. Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, when the Lord rebukes Peter. Remember that one? When the Lord, Peter's up up here, the Lord's talking about, well, I'm going to the cross and I got to die. And Peter goes, oh, no, 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 no. You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to die. And the Lord looks at him and says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Ooh, that's pretty rough. Remember in John chapter 13? George, Lord said, I'm going to wash all your feet. And he said, no, no, Lord, you're never, never, never going to wash my feet. Jesus said, look, pal, if I don't wash your feet, you've got nothing to do with me. Rough? But Peter grew through it. You know, I like the little thing. I look for little things in the Bible. I found that the little things in the Bible usually are great things. You take Peter. He's one of the greatest studies in all of the Bible. I think that thing after he, I think that thing over there and. In, in the New Testament, after he, 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 uh, he uh, uh, betrayed the Lord and, and denied him, I think that those events when he gets back with the Lord is one of the greatest things in the Bible that ever showed any Christian anywhere where we're at when we get out of fellowship with God and how we get back. It's one of the most amazing things I ever saw in my life. But Peter grew through it. Peter took the rebuke and he grew through it. I, I like First I like Peter and Second Peter. There's, there's some great stuff in it. But I like the first verse of each book because it shows Peter grew through his life and grew through his problems. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he opened the book by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at me, man, I'm with the Lord. But from the time he wrote First Peter to Second Peter, he learned some things. So when I write Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Peter, a servant of the Lord. See, he learned some things. He learned that, that, that you have to go through a process that we all go through. David learned from his mistakes because he was a teachable spirit and, and loved the rebuke because he knew that it was only for his good. And, and that's the difference. That's the difference of being able to take rebuke and learn from it and not being able to take it. That's the difference between somebody being able to come to you and saying something and you get defensive about it or somebody saying something and you love them for it. It comes down to the teachable spirit. It comes down to the fact that you know that that person, no matter who it may be, Nathan, the Lord with Peter, John the Baptist with Herod, the end of the day, he only did it because he wanted to help them. He did it simply because he knew that if they would grow through it, they'd be better than where they were. And he loved a rebuke because he knew it was for his good. 
He sums up his life, David does, and I leave you with this today in Psalms 141, verse 5, and I think you probably want to look at this. What a verse. Simply called a psalm of David. Most of the things that David writes, David writes when he's going through the great trials of his life, or he writes going through the great victories after the trials. And I can honestly say that he went through the trials of his life because he made some stupid decisions just like you and I did. But he went through the victory times of his life because he was a teachable and he learned from his mistakes. Psalm 141 says this, Lord, I cry unto thee, make haste unto me. Give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set before thee as incense and lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifices. Now, you want to mark that right there. That's a verse that tells you that when you get back in the tabernacle and back in the Song of Solomon, that tells you right there that incense in the Bible will always be a picture of prayer. You want to mark that. Verse 3, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Incline not my heart to go any evil thing, to practice wicked works with the men that work iniquity, and let me not eat of their dainties. Let the righteousness smite me, it shall be a kindness. And let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil, which shall not break my head, for yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. He says simply there, Lord, that listen, what you go through, you pray through, becomes your victory. He says, Lord, let the righteous smite me, it shall be kindness. Let him reprove me, it shall be an excellent oil oil that you would put on a wound to help it heal. The Proverbs are the common down-to-earth issues that we all go through for helping people and getting them to a, a, a place in their life that they become productive, understanding the cause and the effect of why we go through the things that we do based on the instructions of the Lord, the principle. And life simply comes down to people. And people come down to two kinds. You're going to have the ones who are teachable and you're going to have the ones that are unteachable. You're going to have to learn to deal with both. Some will be teachable and they'll be very nice people. Some will be teachable, be very hard people. It's a situation where the principles show you how to deal with them, help you understand how to get through and deal with people and recognize who is teachable and who isn't. Well, we'll hold up there and next week we'll move on into the next part of Proverbs, we'll have a word of prayer here in a second and we'll be dismissed. Please take time to shine up for everything back there or get whatever you need back there for next week so we can get all that worked up and closed up. We love you. Thank you for being here today. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you now, Lord, for all you do.